You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RDTB podcast, brought to you by Nualtra. My name is Neve Lillyman and I'm a second year student dietitian. Today, we will be exploring an area of dietetics that I've seen taking the spotlight recently, and rightly so, gut health. Today, I'm really excited to welcome registered dietitian, Caitlin Colucci. Caitlin has become a prominent figure in the gut health world, and today we are lucky enough to be exploring her career as a leading gut health dietitian to learn about her journey, advice, and tips to those students interested in pursuing this speciality. Hello, Caitlin. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. No, it's a pleasure. Really excited to have you um, and yeah, to talk about gut health because this is really your thing, isn't it? I would I would like to think I know a thing or two for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so yeah, I think let's just get straight to it. So let's hear about your career since graduating in 2015. Yeah, so I mean, first of all, I studied at the University of Nottingham um, and I did the four year undergraduate master's degree um, to become a qualified dietitian. So in our fourth year of university, we did the research project and I then was fortunate enough to secure my first band five um, rotational job at St. Mary's Hospital in London, which is part of Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. And that rotation was an orthopedics and vascular surgery rotation as a band five. So I found it super interesting and a little bit more meaty than just the typical care of the elderly, which a lot of band Mm -hmm. fives uh, need to do. in the first stages of their career Um, and then also at that same hospital I then did a different six-month rotation so the first rotation was six months in orthopedics and vascular surgery then I did a different rotation for another six months which was the care of the elderly and also covered an endocrinology ward Um, it was it was such a fantastic hospital and I and I got so much experience I had fantastic um, like line managers and mentors who Um, I shadowed and at this stage I didn't really know kind of which speciality I wanted to go down but I was just keen to kind of get experience in all different areas to see what I liked and maybe see what I didn't like. There were a few areas I already knew that weren't for me from having done them on my placement so for example renal I totally respect all the renal dietitians (laughs) out there but I just knew it was like never going to be something for me. Um, but uh, I initially thought that I wanted to go into either diabetes or gastro, as I really, really liked the idea of outpatients. So I was never super keen on the hospital environment, and I actually think that that's really okay to say, and I think it's quite important to admit, because I felt like I couldn't really speak my truth when I was a student, because we were primed to work in the hospital and not really made to feel like there was much other option. Now, I think with dietetic students today, that has massively changed. Um, But I think it's just important to note that, you know, there are other options other than working within a hospital. So like I said, I shadowed a lot of other specialities just to kind of see what I liked. Mm -hmm. Um, I was then fortunate enough to get a band six rotational position, which was at another of the Imperial hospitals, Hammersmith Hospital. And this was for a gastro-oncology post. Um, And within that band six rotation, it just so happened as well that we had quite a lot of absences from our band seven dietitians. So I ended up getting loads of experience with hepatobiliary surgery, haematology, and I was also fortunate enough to do my uh uh total parental nutrition competencies so it was okay. really gaining kind of lots of experience in loads of different areas but this is where I started to really tap into sort of the gastro side of things mm-hmm. um I also just want to note that at this stage was was also when I did my BDA so British Dietetic Association media spokesperson course because I always had a real keen interest of trying to work with the media whether that was TV radio writing articles and this is why I started my Instagram page back in 2017, The Mission Dietitian, because really I created the page to highlight the media work that I was doing. Yeah. Um, so after then that band six position, so I was kind of doing obviously NHS work and then just like media work, like very ad hoc on the side. 
Um, then after that band six position, I got another band six rotational position at the third Imperial Hospital, which is Charing Cross Hospital. And this was the gastrosurgery role. So um, focusing on patients who had IBD, so Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, gastrosurgery. And also this is where I started doing an outpatient gastro clinic once a week. And so I was sent to do the FODMAP training at King's College London. Um, but kind of what I found after working in this role for, I think, over a year, it was fantastic. And I got so much experience and it was very clinical. And again, I was doing, you know, TPN and enteral feeds and and really felt part of like that MDT team. But, you know, the patients I was working with, they were obviously very sick. A lot of patients in the NHS are very unmotivated. You know, you're working reactively, not proactively when it comes to nutrition, you know, NHS problems that affect everyone. You have limited resources, limited time. And I just decided that it really started to feel like, you know, this wasn't going to be viable for me long term. Like this wasn't the thing that was lighting up my soul and making me super happy. And it was funny because at the time, a a band seven gastro ICU dietitian post became available at Imperial. And I was like, great, like natural progression of things. This is what I want to do. I applied for the role and I didn't get it. And I was like, absolutely devastated at the time. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do now? But it's just, Mm. I always think it's so funny because everything really does happen for a reason because I think the only reason I applied was because it was the natural progression of things. And of course I did feel like I was ready and I wanted more experience and all of that. But, you know, when you really don't listen to your intuition, I believe that the universe has a way of sending you down the right path. So it made me look for other options. I was like, okay, well, are there any other options out there? Because, you know, I'm not super keen on a hospital environment anyway. So maybe let's just have a look. Um, I know I wanted to reach like a wider audience in terms of like working more preventatively when it comes to health. So, um, yeah, I just had a look what was out there and I came across this outpatient role working in private healthcare. Mm. Um, and I applied for this band seven position and yeah, have been there kind of ever since. So it'll be five years in September. Um, but throughout this time, I also gradually built up my freelance business, um, which basically it was having more time during the pandemic and having there being a higher demand, which really allowed me to do this so now Mm. I am three days a week working for a private healthcare company and then two days a week plus or minus some extras um (laughs) I'm working on my own freelance business wowie you've done so much um you know I you hear someone's a gastro dietitian but you don't I suppose I haven't really thought about actually the amount of things that you've come across like outside of gastro just from I say just from being in a gastro role but the amount of things you've got experience in um yeah and I like I like what you said about well actually not lots of different things but going back to saying when you're a student that you feel almost conditioned to to that you'll be on the wards and everything like that but as you say there is so much more to it um so yeah I really sort of agree with you there um and I think that's a lot of a lot of a lot of students are kind of in that battle at the minute, like, oh, where do I go? Is it is that for me? Is that not for me? Um, so yeah, thank you for reassurance that yeah, it is perfectly okay to, to not want that. Um, but yeah, and particularly what you said about the NHS as well, sort of it being reactive, not proactive. I find myself saying that a lot sometimes. And it's I get what you mean that if you're so passionate about something and you can't fulfill that, you can't you can't do that in the environment that's in. Like, you know, I can completely see why you decided to to move on and um, but still sort of you know work within that that space um yeah so it sounds like a really exciting career thank you and I mean yeah I mean just back to the NHS like unfortunately that is just the nature of the beast and mm. you know the jobs that I had in the NHS were very fulfilling in other ways um and um and actually as as a dietitian and especially as a newly qualified dietitian I can only thank the experience I had in the NHS to really that really got me to where I am today and I do believe that actually working in the NHS is a hugely hugely valuable position to be in for all dietitians because of the clinical experience that it teaches you Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is really really important to build that foundation. 
Yeah, no, that's worth that's worth noting as well, because I think a lot of students, again, it's the debate of I've debated it so many times in the podcast before. Oh, do I do NHS? Do I not? Um, so, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I suppose just going into because some of our student listeners probably, you know, they might not have been on placement yet um, who might be thinking, oh, gastro, is it for me? Generally, what kind of conditions do you do you see as a gastro dietitian, whether that be private or back in your NHS time? Yeah, so um, it varies. Um, I guess with outpatients, um, it's definitely more patients with IBS and other functional gut disorders. You get more stable IBD patients rather than like very active or chronic uh, patients. Mm-hmm. Whereas for gastro inpatients, so on the hospital um, ward, there's definitely a lot more tube feeding. There's things like pegs, judges, you know, TPN, so feeding um, uh, via IV. Um, whereas, and, and you know, um, yeah, so prescribing TPN, tube feeds, supplements, um, whereas outpatients definitely is more of like a food first approach, plus the occasional sort of supplements. And in outpatients, you can also uh, focus a lot more on lifestyle, um, because uh you know patients can then implement that more readily more easily like into their current lifestyle um i guess you know with the difference between sort of nhs patients and private patients in general um is that patients i have found from my experience in that the private setting um patients are definitely more motivated to make dietary changes already. They are really keen to see a dietitian. Um, you know, they come to you because they want to come to you. Whereas some patients in the NHS, not all, but they see a dietitian because they're sent to see a dietitian by their consultant yeah. or their doctor, or, you know, on a ward setting, you know, the nurses refer them to us because they might have a high must score or low BMI or, you know, because they need TPN and um, you know, it's not necessarily because they want to see a dietitian. Um, so it's really kind of like working with different patient groups. Um, but yeah, different sort of conditions as well. Yeah, it's it sounds so varied. Um, although, yeah, we know the the I suppose the key gastro um, conditions and things, but the variation there it sounds like it's 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 something that a lot of people would be able to find something they enjoy in so I mean we were doing like TPN in uni the other day um and someone you know someone was there my friend says to me oh I really like this it's really meaty and like I'm not even that mathsy and I was thinking and I'm quite mathsy and I was thinking "Mm, I don't know whether that's for me but actually you know there's there's that breadth in in gastro that speciality so you can go into different things um yeah and particularly kind of with the patients as well I think I suppose it's it's almost controversial to say it but yeah I suppose that does make a difference particularly if it's dealing with the lifestyle change and things yeah would you I suppose I mean you kind of highlighted the difference between the private and the gastro the private the private and the NHS patients in gastro and I suppose the difference between the NHS and private let's go into that so other knowledge and skills and qualifications needed to be an NHS gastro dietitian different from being a private gastro dietitian from your experience? So I would argue no, unless there is a specific qualification required by the private sector to see the specific patient group that comes to that uh, particular centre. For example, uh, where I work, you have to be FODMAP trained. So whenever we interview someone, someone you have to have done the FODMAP training because the, um, you know, the majority of our referrals are kind of IBS functional gut disorders. Mm. However, um, patients in the private sector do expect a much higher quality of care and do have, you know, many, many more questions. You know, even our appointment times are longer, which just means like more time with one on one with the patient, which allows mm. them more time to ask questions. Um, this is just talking from my experience as the area that I work in at my private company, but I definitely see more complex FODMAPs and functional gut disorders. And there are a lot more questions about um, like trending diet topics and diet myths. So, for example, a really big one at the moment is 
continuous glucose monitoring and a healthy population topic (laughs) (laughs) um things like keto diets should I be drinking celery juice so you really have to be very like up to date with uh everything that's going on um uh, in the nutrition world whereas when working in a hospital setting, yes, I remember still getting asked those questions from time to time, but it is a lot more like clinical and focused on the specific condition that you're trying to treat. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's quite um, interesting to hear that. And I suppose it comes down to maybe a confidence thing rather than a qualification. It's a confidence and maybe having that because trends, they probably well, they originate from social media, a lot of them and influencers and things like that so maybe it's less about the qualification per se and actually more about your exposure to things like social media and your cpd and things yeah cpd is so important and absolutely like the confidence thing i I remember when i first started in private it was it was like people asking you simple questions about diet and nutrition and it makes you almost like doubt yourself and you're like because i wasn't used to having people ask me so many questions about Mm -hmm. things but it was actually like okay well that's a simple question of course I know how to answer that and yeah so it's a confidence thing it's a you know a clinical experience thing um the other thing I will just add is that working in the private sector again this is to my role specifically where I'm working as an outpatient uh, dietitian one-on-one with patients in an outpatient clinic it can be a lot more like isolating as in you're not in that ward environment where you have Mm -hmm. all the nurses and the doctors and the consultants like around you all the time and so you really have to have that confidence again to know okay when is this stepping out of my remit when do I need to refer onwards when do I need to involve other members of the MDT um so so that so that that's really important too Mm. yeah and I suppose that comes down to again like experience of trusting your scope of practice for talk about that all the time at uni um and yeah I think it's definitely something you have to get the hang of doing and again like that confidence so I suppose do you you said about um the NHS and how valuable the experience has been to get you where you are I suppose would you say it's essential to be in the NHS working as a gastro dietitian or is it um, advisable yes I would say it's definitely advisable because mm-hmm the NHS really does provide so much like in-depth and complex clinical experience. You need a real understanding of the gut. You need a real understanding of medications prescribed for specific conditions. You need a real understanding of treatment options, when to refer onwards, what tests need to be done, and actually an understanding of what those tests involve, what the investigations look like. And... Uh, the NHS just does provide all of that for a, uh, you know, a gastro dietitian because working in the field of gastro or gut health it is very clinical. Like we cannot forget that as dietitians, you know, we are learning and understanding about how the human body works, how specific conditions can interfere with how the body works and therefore how that can impact nutrition. And so we need a real understanding. I mean, which we do learn at university, but uh, we need a real understanding of 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 how that then is applied in the real life, which we cover in, in placement. But I think, you know, placements is just like the tip of the iceberg, because uh, when you're kind of set free as a first band five dietitian, it's like I always refer it to like it's like the first time you pass your driving test for anyone out there that's passed. And it's like the first time you're actually driving in a car without mm-hmm. anyone else. You're like, oh, my gosh. What yeah. Am I doing? <laughs> yeah no do you know what that wasn't that long ago for me and I'm thinking, yeah I remember it I remember it <laughs> yeah that's yeah. kind of I remember the feeling of like when I was a band five on the ward for the first time so yeah. yes from imposter syndrome where you feel like a bit of a, a fraud yeah <laughs> yeah no um I think yeah you touched on that really nicely and I think it provides a bit of sort of reassurance and a bit of guidance because I think that's some, something that can be lacking for some students as, as where can I go with this um I suppose following on from that then you said about having an understanding of the human body and it's not just about the gut and you know that interaction with other conditions 
Do you see or have you kind of had much overlap with other specialities in dietetics when you're working as a gut health dietitian? Yeah, massively so. Um, You know, we know that the gut and the gut microbiome is linked to everything now from brain health, skin health, heart health, kidney, liver. So it really is like the epicentre of all other health conditions. I suppose in the area I work in now, so more outpatient private work, um, consultancy, the biggest overlap I see is with eating disorders and disordered eating. So it's estimated that 98% of people with an eating disorder suffer from some sort of GI symptoms. That's, that was taken from patients, uh, eating disorder patients who were admitted to a hospital. Now, because IBS is a disorder of the gut-brain interaction, it can therefore adversely affect the health outcomes of someone with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. It's inconclusive at this stage. It's like a chicken and egg scenario. So whether like kind of which comes first. So whether having a disorder of the gut brain interaction like IBS increases the risk of developing an eating disorder or it's the eating disorder, which then increases the risk of developing something like Mm -hmm. IBS. Um, But basically myself and another dietitian called Sarah Elder, we recognize that there was this huge sort of gap in our dietetic training as to how to manage the two because what we found was like Sarah was Sarah's an eating disorder dietitian Mm -hmm. she was seeing eating disorder patients and they would suffer from gut disorders so she would refer them to a gastro dietitian and then like gastro dietitians myself included were seeing people with like IBS who were then developing like disordered eating and we would refer them over to eating disorder dietitians but it was both sides kind of felt like the patient was sort of slightly out of their remit somehow so there was this like gray area in the middle where like all these patients are kind of like ending up where they don't want to be seen by an eating disorder dietitian and they they don't want to be seen by a gastro dietitian or because they feel like they've exhausted both those avenues so they're kind of like referring across so me and Sarah recognize there was this gap in in our training and we've actually now created a um, study day that we run twice a year Mm -hmm. Uh, which is on the management of gut disorders in disordered eating and eating disorders. So mm-hmm. for anyone listening, this is suitable for all dietitians, student dietitians. Um, the next one we're running is in November and it's all online. So um, keep an eye on my social media or Sarah Elder's social media for updates um, as to when that might be. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's That'd be so helpful. Um, I, you know, I think particularly as students who feel kind of that, you, you want to work within your remit and I guess that you know that that goes on for when you're a qualified dietitian but I like what you said about that gap there and actually you know how can you advise someone with IBS about all these you new know, FODMAP diets is a FODMAP diet going to be appropriate for someone who's you know already got disordered eating and anyway it's just it's where do you where do you how do you deal with that and I like that you've gone and done something about that and and kind of bridge that gap um and yeah, would you say that it's, I mean, you've got your study day here that actually therefore working as a dietitian, a gastro dietitian, should we be getting extra training in eating disorders or like, like after we've qualified? Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue definitely yes. Um, you know, when you qualify as a dietitian, I always say you are a forever student because you can never stop learning about new research, new areas, um, how areas overlap. So absolutely, I think, you know, more training and um, more study in that area is only beneficial because, you know, although there is this big overlap with eating disorders and gastro, you know, eating disorders span all clinical conditions, you know, so eating disorders affect anyone. Um, So, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that um, and get, give some great insight into the sorts of learning that that goes beyond university. Um, so I suppose we've spoken about uh, working as a gastro dietitian in a hospital or clinical or outpatient setting. You touched a little bit on working in the media, but where else can gastro dietitians work or who can they work with? Very good question. <laughs> so, um, 
yeah, I mean, gastro dietitians have a place in so many different areas. So we've obviously got the NHS we've spoken about. We've got the private sector where I'm currently working. And that can also be, you know, my current role is an outpatient dietitian, but there are private hospitals across the country that gastro dietitians can work at, which is also inpatient hospital work, but just within a private hospital. Um, You have gastro sort of gut health dietitians within the media. So that could be you know, talking about gut health topics on TV, on the radio, writing articles for newspapers, magazines, that type of thing. Um, Gut health dietitians can also work on more of like a consultancy basis. So working, say, with brands that maybe want to develop a gut health product range, or they're looking at a specific product, which is claiming to benefit gut health in some way. And therefore, they may want a dietitian on board to help with the nutritional claims and nutritional side of that particular product and the marketing of it. Um, You can work in um, research and development of, of products. Um, and work for other like corporate companies. So, you know, a gastro dietitian might work for some someone like, um, trying to think of an example, like Cow and Gate, you know, baby formula, for example. Mm. Uh, and, you know, understanding a little bit more about like how the formulas are digested and the amino acids that they use and the type of pro- proteins and fats and that type of thing. Um, so, yeah, really, really varied. And I think, you know, the role of a gastro dietitian can vary depending on the setting. So obviously an NHS dietitian is very clinical and you may be calculating things like TPN, whereas, you know, consultancy-based work is a bit more like creative and you're, you know, discussing ideas with, you know, a team of people who have no idea about nutrition. So it's about how can you make that clinical knowledge and information um, relatable and digestible by people who have like never heard it before. Yeah, no, it sounds incredibly varied. Um, and yeah, that, that it sounds like such an exciting place to be, particularly at that working with brands. And I suppose, if, I guess it's if you're, I mean, if, if you're a foodie, a dietitian is a great role anyway. But yeah. if you're a foodie, like developing products and things like that, that sounds really, really interesting. Yeah. 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 I think we're all foodies, dietitians. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just comes with the job, doesn't it? You yeah. Just have to be. <laughs> um, so you spoke about uh you so you got FODMAP trained back when you were at Charing Cross you were at. Um yes. so when we say FODMAP trained, what what do we mean and is is this a specific course or yeah, really good question. So yeah, FODMAP trained, I guess. What what do I mean by that? It means that yeah, I've gone to a specific course which teaches you how to implement the low FODMAP diet for patients with IBS in your clinical practice and also teaches you the science behind what is the low FODMAP diet, how it came to be a thing, the evidence and research behind how it works and why it is we're actually recommending patients to follow this quite, you know, difficult and restrictive diet at times. So um, the course I did was the course at King's College London and Mm -hmm. it was a three-day in-person course at the time but I did this back in oh gosh like 2018 so quite a while ago um and it's the dietary management of the low FODMAP diet in IBS so they do a three-day introduction course they also do a three-day advanced course so I've actually done both of those which was you know I did the advanced course just as more of like a good update um but then they do also do just do like I think it's like a one-day update course so they've got lots of different options um the BDA also does a study course on the management of IBS using the low FODMAP diet which I have not done um um, personally um, but those are just a sort of a few different options that people can do to get more information and training in the low FODMAP diet because once you've done that training you are then competent to be able to confidently discuss and implement a low FODMAP diet with a patient in clinic um, because it's not it's not just as simple as this patient has been diagnosed with IBS Therefore, they must go on the low FODMAP diet. There's so many other factors to discuss with the patient before that decision is even made to go down the low FODMAP route. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it goes beyond what we get taught at university, which kind of re-emphasizes what you said about 
you know it's always it's a constant constant school isn't it um constant yes. learning um and yeah it's great that those opportunities are out there um would you at what point in your so you're a couple of years in to being a qualified dietitian but at what point that you know of is it appropriate for us to start training in FODMAP is it as soon as we graduate or could it be a bit later yeah so I received the training as soon as I um got my band six role because it required the uh it required the training oh yeah because I did do an outpatient clinic in that role too sorry it's all just coming back to me yeah so (laughs) as soon as I got my band six role um they sent me for the FODMAP training because I needed it for the role that I was doing um now I mean, could you argue that you could do it as soon as you qualified? I guess you probably could. But I would say unless your band five role includes an outpatient clinic where you would see IBS patients, then absolutely you would need to do the training. Um, But otherwise, it wouldn't necessarily it wouldn't be a necessity at that stage. Um, But because, you know, functional gut disorders and IBS are, are so common, um, if you were seeing patients who required that diet, then I, I would recommend to do it, you know, as soon as possible, really. Mm-hmm. The only thing I will say is, you know, for dietitians working in the hospital setting, it's unlikely you're going to go through a low FODMAP diet with a patient on the ward. I don't think yeah. I ever, ever did that because the 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 main aim uh, for a patient on a ward setting is to you know maximize nutritional status or minimize weight loss or you know you know reducing bloating by 75 percent you know mm. should won't be one of the main aims for someone who is clinically unwell um so and you know i guess you know if you're working in industry then it probably wouldn't make sense to have have fodmap training unless you had a keen interest for it um so all i will say is that if you are in a role that requires the training often the hospital the trust the company would likely not always pay for it um whereas if your role isn't related to fodmaps in any way then i would assume you'd be expected to pay for the training yourself yeah no thank you for that insight um i think it's one of those things that's not talked about in university really we get kind of a muscle stop tour of the fodmap diet um but actually there's so much more to it so yeah thank you for going through that um it'd be really helpful for anyone trying to navigate where they're where they're going with their career i think after they graduate um so kind of moving on from that then so you have a quite large following on social media um and you're also a media spokesperson for the BDA which you spoke about um do you feel that it's important for gut health dietitians to have a presence on social media I do yes because there is so much misinformation out there when it comes to gut health all you have to do is type in gut health to TikTok and I've seen things like take this internal shower cleanse and, you know, drink these apple cider vinegar shots or eat these gummies. Mm -hmm. And I just think if dietitians don't have a voice on social media to at least try and get these uh, evidence-based evidence out there, then there really is kind of no hope for people in the world to make more informed decisions and choices around their health. Now, I don't think it's a necessity, absolutely not, Um, But I think if someone has an interest in social media and they like doing it, uh, then then absolutely, I I would say that more gastro dietitians should should be having a voice on their social media platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the way things are going with because people make some dangerous recommendations, don't they? And that aren't always considering the bigger picture. Um, You know, I think. There's been, there's been loads of that internal shower and actually that can maybe make you feel a bit poorly um exactly. and someone who's not qualified you know wouldn't wouldn't necessarily not wouldn't necessarily know that but wouldn't necessarily mention that and so yeah making sure that we've got the gastro we've got the representation of the gastro dietitians that's definitely Absolutely. something and you make a really good point there in terms of dietitians understanding slightly the bigger picture in terms of mm-hmm. overall human health you know when we see patients we assess their full nutritional status we do a full you know dietetic assessment on them whereas many other people out there who don't have that dietetic training don't may not understand how one thing can be linked to another 
or if someone's got high or low blood pressure, for example, then we, you know, something that they do might have a contraindication, or if they're taking a certain medication, then another medication may interact. So a lot of people, you know, just don't know that, whereas us as dietitians, we do, so we can, you know, provide information and advice that is safer. It's such a shame there's not more regulation there, because, you know, if if a dietitian was to say something um, that's, you know, not safe on social media, they'd be held accountable for it. And yeah. that's the thing. And people who aren't qualified aren't really held accountable for it. So it's yeah. a real shame. I think maybe the more presence on social media might help to move things in the right direction that way. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, again, the great point you make there with in regards to if we were to make a claim that is unsafe on social media, yeah, we would be held accountable. And I think that can often scare some people off. You know, what if I say the wrong thing? What if it's interpreted in the wrong way? But you just have to remember that as long as you are providing evidence-based advice, you're um, then, then, then essentially, you know, you're covered. As long as you're not making like bogus claims and, you know, selling non-evidence-based products and that type of thing, mm-hmm. then, uh, then yeah, I'd say go for it. Yeah yeah no hopefully I think there's a big big um rise in students on social media so hopefully that will develop into more gut health or you know whatever speciality dietitians when they're qualified so would you say in your freelance role then um having that social media has it opened more opportunities for you Yes, absolutely. So when I started my Instagram page back in 2017, like I said, I only started it to really highlight the media work that I was doing. And I had no idea about the sheer power it would have over my career. I mean, to be honest, I don't think anyone knew how big Instagram was going to get when it first launched. No. I remember it launched when I in my first year of university. Um, and like people, it was just a, you know, a platform for friends. And no one realized it was going to turn into like this business venture for millions of people around the world. So, um, yes, it has opened so many doors. And as my following has grown, more opportunities have arisen with, you know, more credible brands or credible companies, for example, which I am so, so eternally grateful for. And I've been able to help and reach a a wider audience and built such a like lovely community of people um and also met some incredible dietitians like some of my closest friends now are friends that I met through social media which I just think is incredible so yes social media has its downsides but if used in the right way social media really can have such a positive impact on people's lives yeah yeah I love what you said there about sort of some of your closest friends the people who you've met on them you know dietetics is such a small world isn't it so it has the power I suppose social media to unite us a little bit exactly and the dietitian the dietetic community on Instagram is so friendly like everyone bigs everyone up like everyone Mm. is super supportive of everyone which I think is really nice and I think that just says a lot about our profession really yeah yeah no it's it, we're quite lucky with that I think with I suppose the the type of people we have in the profession yeah yeah so I notice I say it's off topic but it's actually not off topic because as you said like gut mind everything and um, I noticed on your social media so you completed a yoga teacher training course um, and you talk a lot about yoga on social media and that like gut brain axis is this something that you are I suppose, actively combining into your work as a gut health dietitian? Yes. So this conversation has come at a good time because I would say I'm definitely at a slight turning point, a pivot moment, like in my career in that, you know, I'm still going to be a gut health dietitian. I love what I do, but I've always been a big yogi myself. I've been practicing yoga for like many, many years. And it got to the point where I wanted to learn more about the practice. But then Mm -hmm. it also got to the point where we are now having more and more research come out about the gut brain axes and the mind body connection and how um, our mental health can have such an impact over the way that our gut functions. And actually what I was noticing is that about, you know, 80% of my patients with functional gut disorders were so sort of disconnected from themselves they were stressed anxious running around eating on the go working long hours with insufficient breaks maybe unhappy being taken along by life rather than like consciously living their own life Mm. 
and you know making the dietary changes were only marginally improving things because they have this complete disconnection between the mind and body so mm-hmm. by kind of shifting the attention to the mind body connection calls for this more sort of comprehensive approach which encompasses not only dietary modifications but also focusing on that psychological and emotional well-being so that's why practices like yoga meditation and my favorite which is breath work so simply just tuning into our breath has been shown and we now have research to back these up that they can have such profound impact on gut health and this is all to do with activating the parasympathetic nervous system um which is part of the autonomic autonomic nervous system so these practices basically can promote relaxation reduce stress influence the gut microbiome and this is the topic what i just that i just found fascinating mm-hmm. and so then i decided to uh, go to Bali in Indonesia and do my yoga teacher training, which taught me more about these practices. And kind of whilst I was there, um, you know, whilst absorbing all the information, my brain is ticking over, like, okay, great, it's amazing. How can I, how can I, how can I bring this very like spiritual side of the yoga practice and implement that into the more scientific side of the work that I do mm-hmm. with my clients? So yes, I will be integrating, well, I already do integrate yoga, meditation and breath work into the work that I do with my clients. But before my yoga training, it was very much like, here's my, I created like a playlist of um, YouTube videos for like yoga, meditation, breath work, and would like send people these to watch. Whereas now the offerings will be able to come from myself. So um, there will be a new, new sort of offering coming very soon in the next kind of uh, months. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to work with me, then they know, then they can check that out. But I know this podcast is more for like students and student dietitians. So, yeah, I just thought it worth worth mentioning. Yeah, definitely. I think students, what you said, just sort of no breaks, working long hours, you know, when you're on placement and things, that's definitely, definitely relevant to us um, and worth giving you a follow for that, I think, um, just to kind of see where your work is. But it's really nice to hear because you talked about your whole career journey and in so much detail and how it's evolved and you've you've found your own little niche haven't you um which is so hard to do I think in gut health because it's so prominent now both from the dietetic side and the pseudoscience side that we don't like on social media and so yeah well done for sort of doing that I think that's it's really sort of admirable oh thank you yeah I think if we go back to your dietetics degree then um because we I suppose as students it's always good to hear kind of your experiences and things are there any skills that you learn in your degree that you think are particularly important for the work that you do now as a gastro dietitian yes absolutely so I mean the biggest one is understanding how to complete and do a nutritional assessment so you know how to assess individuals nutritional needs evaluate their dietary habits analyze their nutritional status like that really is key and core to the work that I still do to this day with all of my my patients you know learning about and understanding various diseases and medical conditions and developing appropriate dietary plans to manage and treat them that is super important um I'm not sure if universities still do this but we did a bit of sort of menu planning so kind of how to design a balanced and nutritious menus for different populations that was maybe working more with like food service operations, maybe in like healthcare facilities, schools and other settings. Um, the other big one is the nutrition counselling and education. So how to effectively communicate and educate individuals and groups about nutrition, understanding the different dietary guidelines and healthy eating guidelines from the government. Um, also research and evidence-based practice. So developing the ability to basically critically analyze scientific papers and apply these evidence-based principles in nutritional recommendations, which again, still to this day, when new papers come out, uh, I utilize those skills. Mm. Um, Also just understanding the properties of food and like food production processes, food preservation techniques. Um, these are all kind of like very essential skills to make informed recommendations and assess the nutritional value of different food products when talking to patients. Um, also, 
learning and understanding about public health principles. So community nutrition programs, strategies to promote healthy eating habits and prevent nutritional nutrition related diseases at population level, which we did a lot, a lot of in university. So that would be particularly helpful well, if working in public health, but also also just working with people from very diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of then ties into the cultural competence side of things. So, you know, recognising and respecting diverse cultural practices and dietary preferences really is crucial to provide effective and culturally sensitive nutrition care, um, especially, at, you know, people listening to this podcast will be all over the country, but, you know, especially London, it's a very multicultural population. So um, what else? Interdisciplinary collaboration, I would say. So, you know, as we've spoken about dietetics involves working as part of an MDT. So learning how to collaborate with that MDT uh, and know when to refer onwards and yeah, just like the professional skills. So, you know, developing skills in documentation, record keeping, ethical decision-making and staying up to date with current nutrition guidelines and regulations. So yes, university is good for, lots of different reasons <laughs> yeah don't skip those lectures don't skip those lectures friends <laughs> yeah and it sounds like a lot of that you probably would learn on placement as well I know sort of where I am placements will be kind of over the West Midlands if you think about kind of Birmingham there's you know they're so multicultural I guess you get that exposure to to sort of the the diverse cultures that that you know your patients will be and um, so yeah placement's important as well don't skip that either yeah don't can, skip but, yeah <laughs> yeah kind of and maybe maximize those opportunities as well um I think sometimes when you're a student and on my placement you feel kind of "Mm, I don't want to ask I want to do that but I don't want to ask I don't want to be in the way but actually going to an MDT or asking or just trying to get that exposure could be the best way to develop those skills that you were talking about yes absolutely and what I would say to all students is don't be afraid to ask the questions because You can ask silly questions as a student because people give you more grace because you're a student. Whereas then once you're qualified, I mean, also once you're qualified, you are not expected to know everything. So you can still ask silly questions. Absolutely. But when you're a student, never feel embarrassed that any question is too silly. So always ask the questions, be curious, um, you know, make sure you understand things. And if you don't ask again, um and yeah you know those placements really are great for practicing sort of all all those those skills I mean I'll tell this I always tell this story because I just think it shows kind of even how far I've come but I will never forget on my first ever placement um I no sorry my placement B the first day of my placement B I was at Lincoln County Hospital and I went to go speak to a patient with my supervisor. She was like, okay, are you ready? Like I was going to do a diet history or something like really simple. And she was like, are you ready? I was like, yeah, sure. So she came with me and I remember it was this lovely old man and his lovely wife was there with him. And my supervisor was like, oh, the student is here. She just wants to ask you a few questions. And I literally froze, like never happened to me before no words came out of my mouth and it felt like 10 minutes passed before anyone said anything and then obviously my supervisor just stepped in and was like okay and then we went away from the situation she was like what happened and I was like I don't know I just completely froze and I started crying it was so bizarre it was just like such an overwhelm of what I was doing like talking to someone like foreign that I didn't know so basically it's just important to practice those skills and just have a patience with yourself that you will develop so much as a dietitian over your various placements because yeah I always laugh at that story because I'm now I'm like well now I'm on podcasts and I show my face on social media and I have no problem talking to complete strangers so yeah thinking back to that moment I never thought in a million years I'd end up where I am today Oh, thank you for sharing that story. I think there's a lot of the students, I think that's kind of, hate to say it, but one of the most situations that students are probably scared of the most. Um, so thank you for sharing your experience of that and that actually that they're not the only one that might feel overwhelmed and, and freeze. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose, I think... Yeah, I mean, I've got my placements coming up and I'm definitely starting to feel those nerves. And I know my sort of 
peers are starting to feel it as well um but yeah and thank you for providing that reassurance that we're okay to ask questions and that we don't need to know everything absolutely so I know we said about you know gut health's a lot trendier um but is it just a trend or do do you think that the need for gut health dietitians is just going to be ever growing I don't think it's just a trend but it is becoming trendier because it really is the cutting edge of the science at the moment so we're finding out so much more about the gut microbiome and how it impacts our overall health and so therefore the need for gastro dietitians I believe is growing because Hmm. um because because we are finding so much out about it so whether that's NHS gastro roles or other private uh, companies sort of now offering roles or maybe internships or even looking towards social media for um, an intern role for like a gastro or a gut health dietitian online. Um, This is sort of where maybe like students or people interested in gastro can try to get a bit more experience. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where social media comes in as well, as those opportunities will often be advertised on social media. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. even if, sorry. To, to no, 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 go, go for it. No, so no, I was no, going to say, so yeah, so even if you don't, you know, use social media to post on, um, you can still like have an account to follow people to kind of stay up to date with the latest research and evidence that's going on. Yeah, sounds like there's so many opportunities there for students to, to get involved in. Um, I think while... I mean, you've talked about the breadth of jobs that that could be available once we've graduated, but the students who are just looking to learn a little bit more about gut health and trying to see if that speciality is for them, where could they go while they're a student? Um, so we talked about internships, but is there any kind of charities or those like webinars or things that you could recommend for students to look at? Yeah, absolutely. So few different options. So. Uh, in terms of charities so charities like the IBS network or Guts UK would probably be or even things like um, Crohn's and Colitis UK um, would probably be the best places to start to see if maybe they had any volunteering roles or getting involved with events or even helping them update booklets and leaflets and that type of thing Um, in terms of webinars um, my NutriWeb offer such fantastic webinars on a breadth of different gut health related topics from probiotics to fermented foods to the gut brain axis. So that's a really fantastic, and those are all free to attend as well. So that's a really great CPD tool. Yes, yeah. um, there's the BDA specialist group. So the gastroenterology specialist group, which sometimes hosts events and also free webinars. Well, you have to pay to be a part member of the group, but then the webinar is free to attend um, on various different, sort of gut health related topics mm-hmm. um and then yeah we've obviously already spoken about sort of internships for um uh individuals maybe on social media or even you know if there's a particular company working in a gut health space that you like the look of then you could reach out to see if they've got any roles for a potential intern um and then yeah curating a social media feed that that feeds you the latest information on gut health so you know following people like obviously myself but also people like you know Sophie Medlin um Catherine um Kath Brabes as well and other sort of gut health dietitians out there yeah I I definitely agree with you on the 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 social media and feeding feeding with the good vibes I suppose because a lot of my learning comes from dietitians on social media obviously my degree as well but even when people you know they say oh there's a new study out and here's what it is and they reference it if you go and look at it it's like oh okay so they I think this is something that's I'm going on tangent now but this is something that students struggle or have lacking confidence with is critiquing studies so looking at what qualified and experienced dietitians are saying about different studies you can kind of get an idea of actually what that looks like um, and what a good study looks like and why they're using it and social media could be a good good kind of space to do that absolutely and also the biggest thing one of the biggest things that social media taught me was actually like how to convert all the nutritional and scientific information into like a layperson's audience in terms of the words and the language mm. that was used because even the term gut health is essentially just talking about gastroenterology but no one in the real world uses the term gastroenterology 
So that's another reason why social media can be helpful because it's, yeah, again, teaches you ways to actually convey these messages in a really like friendly and understandable way. Yeah. I think what we've got from this podcast is that social media can be your friend as a gastro (laughs) gut health dietitian. Yeah, I would like to think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, so we're coming to the end now. What is one thing that you wish you were known as a student about working as a gastro dietitian and what advice would you give to our future gastro dietitians? Oh gosh, I didn't realise it was one thing. I've like written down like five different things. Here. Oh, do you know what? Do five, <laughs> that's fine. Fine by me. More advice, the better. Okay, fine. Let's let's finish off with a few fire round things then. Um, so I think because as we've covered in this, you know, in this podcast, working in the space of gastroenterology can be complex and very diverse and you can come across many different conditions which all require a very individualized approach so you know things like IBD celiac disease irritable bowel syndrome even like liver disease which didn't really touch on but things like bile acid malabsorption you know the breadth is huge so the number one important thing I would say is to really develop a solid foundation so you know make sure you have a strong understanding of the anatomy and the physiology of the GI system, uh, as well as the medical management and treatment options for all the various different GI conditions, because this knowledge will really help you provide effective and evidence-based nutrition interventions for patients Mm -hmm. and enable you to create, yeah, individualized approaches to each of your patients. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess that that would be the main one. Um, just a few other things would be to always stay up to date with the latest evidence, especially in the area of gut health, because things are rapidly evolving um, with ongoing sort of reach, uh, research and advancements in all this research. And maybe if I choose one more thing would be, ah, which we've already, already, or oh, two more things, uh, already spoken about is embrace ongoing learning. So you are forever student, continuously expand your knowledge through things like CPD, attending conferences, participating in webinars. Um, and just to mention about where else you can learn about gastro, sorry, the uh Sheffield Gastro Symposium is once a year they've just had it but that's another really fantastic conference to learn more about the latest evidence and research in gut health and gastroenterology and then the final point would be for anyone interested in going into the space of gut health or gastroenterology is if possible seek a mentor or always look for networking opportunities so connect with experienced gastro dietitians who can guide you and provide mentorship network with professionals in the field whether that's even just dming on instagram um because this can really open up so many opportunities for learning and collaboration lovely thank you for sharing all that advice i'm glad you did and didn't just stick it to one because um (laughs) yeah no there's there's loads there um, and yeah, you, you've really highlighted how exciting the space is in, in gut health or, or gastroenterology. So thank you for being our guest on the podcast today, Caitlin, and sharing such wonderful advice to our future gut health dietitians. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a pleasure. So now I'll hand you over to Meg, who has got some fantastic info to go all about gut health and gastroenterology. Thanks, Neve. Hi, everyone, and welcome to info to go In a previous episode, I asked all of our listeners who have done or are doing a dissertation, what are your top tips for planning and writing a dissertation? So today, I would like to share some of your top tips that might help anyone that has not yet written a dissertation or is unsure of where to start. First, start as early as possible. I would say that this counts not only for writing or researching your dissertation, but just thinking about topics that you're interested in will make everything so much easier when it's time to decide on your title. Second, set mini deadlines for each part. This is a great point, as I found that later on in the year, there were more deadlines for other subjects too. So being prepared and having some good planning is always a great idea to reduce last minute stress. Third, I would also really recommend utilizing your dissertation supervisor and make sure to schedule in regular meetings with them, as I found that this not only meant that they could give me support and guidance, but also helped me to be more accountable to the many deadlines I'd set myself if I had planned to do something before our next meeting. The fourth tip was another great one, 
that was to make use of the academic skills, maths or stats teams at your university as much as possible. But try not to leave this until the last minute as they will likely get busy at the end of the year when it comes and when everyone else has deadlines too. Also, if you're getting any help that is not subject specific, it's really worth checking with your supervisor what they're, what they're suggesting is relevant to your course. The fifth and final tip is that tools like the Manchester Academic Phrase Bank can also give you some useful starter phrases to help you be more critical when writing your dissertation or discussing your findings. So utilizing online sources like this is also a great idea. I think that dissertations are often a very daunting task and one of the things I was worried about going into my final year. But I think if you take advantage of the support that's available to you and set out a clear plan of deadlines and timeframes, then it can be a much more manageable process than it might have seemed at first. Thank you to everyone that sent through these great top tips and good luck to anyone who is about to start a dissertation or is awaiting results. This month's follow recommendations are following on from today's episode on gut health, this month's follow recommendations are all centered around this. There are loads of amazing companies that share information about different gut conditions. For example, Guts Charity UK, Celiac UK and Crohn's and Colitis UK are all charities working to raise awareness and provide loads of useful resources on both their social media pages and websites. There are also some amazing dietitians that share their experiences and knowledge of gut health, starting off with today's guest who you can find on Instagram at Mission Dietitian. I would also really recommend following The Gut Health Doctor, who has also featured as a guest on the main dietitian cafe to discuss gut health and fibre. And I will also link that episode in the show notes if you'd like to give that a listen to. For this month's CPD, the Dietitian Cafe have also had some great episodes on other gut-related topics such as the importance of early IBD diagnosis, whether gluten-free foods are needed for on prescription for those with celiac disease, and communicating the sciences of probiotics. So again, I will link those in the show notes as an easy way of adding CPD into your day. But when it comes to extra learning, my top tip for gut health is just to go back to basics and make sure that you have a really good understanding of what the role of the gut is and what it looks like. It might seem simple, but having a really good understanding of what the gastrointestinal tract looks like and how it functions in your mind will not only make your other learning easier, but it will also improve your ability to confidently explain GI-related issues to your patients. Ways of revising the gut might be drawing and labelling diagrams, writing out the different functions or sites of, absor- of absorption, or considering which conditions can affect different areas of the gut and what a dietitian's role in that might be. Also, why not check out the Guts UK charity as they share patient stories which will allow you to get a better understanding of what it's like from the service user perspective to have a gut-related condition. I will also link to that page in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Coming up in the next month, the 19th to the 25th of June is Learning Disabilities Week. And this year's theme is all about myth-busting and highlighting the stigma that those with a learning disability face every day. The week is organised by Mencap, a charity who support those with learning disabilities and their families and carers with the aim of helping those with learning disabilities to be equally valued, listened to and included. To find out more about the charity and how you can get involved in Learning Disabilities Week, head over to the MenCap website, which I will link in the show notes. The 3rd to the 9th of July is Alcohol Awareness Week. Organised by Alcohol Change UK, the theme of this year is Alcohol and Cost. Alcohol causes harm to millions of people every year in the form of financial, health, relationship and family difficulties, which can lead to huge social costs and pressures on workplaces, emergency services and the NHS. With the recent cost of living crisis, this has led to many people drinking more in order to cope with their worries. But the aim of this week is to improve the support and prevention available in order to save money and save lives. To find out more about Alcohol Awareness Week, head over to their website, which I will leave a link to in the show notes. If you're getting involved in any of the activities or events that I've mentioned, then I would love to hear from you. 
so you can drop me an email at newultrapodcast at hrscommunications.com. And that's all the info to go for today's episode. And that's all the info to go for today's episode. It's been a pleasure to host this info to go segment and get to interact with so many of our student listeners this year. So for the final time, I'll now hand back over to Neve in the main cafe. Thanks, Meg. I'm sure a lot of listeners will find your advice and resources really beneficial. I would like to say a huge thank you to New Altra once again for making this podcast possible. I would also like to announce that this will be my last episode as host of the RDTB podcast. The last year has been such an incredible experience and I cannot thank New Altra enough for trusting me to host their podcast and for supporting me over the last year. I think this podcast has really opened my eyes to the fantastic opportunities that are available to student dietitians. Speaking of such opportunities, keep an eye out on New Outra's social media as they'll soon be on the hunt for the next host for the next season of the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RDTBs. You can also follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. For the last time from me, thank you for listening.